I'm thrilled to be with you, even though I'm not so thrilled I can't be there in person. But since I can see at least some of you, how many of you are currently physicians? Can you raise your hands? Wow, I see one or two hands. How many of you are students in training of some kind? And how many of you are currently nurses? And how many of you are therapists or others? And how many of you are non-healthcare people? Well, welcome to all of you. I am thrilled. Have you been having a great time with the conference so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I have been amazed with what I've seen of it. I thought the plenary last night was absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I hope you all are having a good time. So the plan is that we get to talk about vaccines. This, uh, well, I was going to say this evening. It's this morning for you all. Uh, we get to talk about vaccines and vaccination and how to help ourselves be immunized to be protected against infections. And for those of us in healthcare, how we can help our patients uh, develop immunity so they can be protected against infection. Does that sound like a good plan to everybody? Yes. Good. I will pretend that was interaction since I saw some response there from you. Anyway, so that's the plan. We're going to talk about vaccines. I've cared about vaccines for a long time. Um, I am currently in Abu Dhabi. You can see the building there. That's got that Abu Dhabi email address. If you're going to email me about anything, that might work. If you use my mail email address on that slide, it's more likely to work since my Abu Dhabi email address does not accept Gmail and other personal things. Anyway, I'm happy to hear from any of you at any time um, after this conference so we can continue interactions if that's useful to you. Um, I can only see part of you in the room. What are your biggest concerns about vaccines? Is it more for your patients, more for yourselves? more for popular media in the United States. What are your big vaccine issues that we should make sure we talk about? Patients. Patients. Can somebody sitting closer to the cameras repeat what I just heard that didn't hear said? Patients. For patients, okay. Other comments? Uh, definitions. Definitions of uh, vaccine, but it appears to have changed in the past year. Okay. All right, good. Well, we will try to cover vaccines from a bunch of angles. We're going to start a little bit basic and then grow from there. Uh, I've cared about vaccines for a long time. For my training in the States, uh, through my time in Congo, the tin-colored roof buildings in the middle of this picture are a hospital in the northeast part of what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, I worked there for six years, 1980s through early 1990s. And sadly, as a pediatrician, I had many of my patients dying from vaccine-preventable illnesses. Since that time, I've traveled around to other parts of the world for teaching and for some research. This is a picture in Bangladesh. One of the fascinating things for me years ago visiting Bangladesh was going to a place called the Diarrhea Hospital. The Diarrhea Hospital officially had a different name, but it was big rooms with hundreds of vinyl orange beds, cots, with a big round circle in the middle of each cot with a bucket underneath it for the room to fill up with patients with diarrhea just letting it flow. 
The beauty of that history is that you don't have to experience all of that because children don't need to die as much of vaccine-preventable illnesses as they did when I was in Congo. And there are also vaccines to prevent much of the diarrhea that was troubling Bangladesh in those days. Along the way, I've had the privilege of writing some chapters for travel and tropical medicine textbooks. I had the privilege of co-editing the textbook of Global Child Health put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I just say that so you know there are resources available, but also for official disclosure, uh, I've gotten free copies of the books that I've written. I get about a dollar and a half each time that Global Child Health textbook gets sold. But I don't think that little bit of income is going to bias me in any negative ways. And then I also write for monthly little commentaries for an infectious disease continuing education thing. And some of that's about vaccines. But the real biases I have, and I admit, are that I've been sick. Um, before we had good vaccines for typhoid and hepatitis A, I was sick with each of those illnesses, sick for two weeks in Congo with typhoid fever, sick for a total of 10 months as the consequences of hepatitis A. And as I mentioned, I've had lots of patients die from vaccine-preventable illnesses. So I admit that I'm biased uh, because I've seen the dangers and I've agonized with patients and families with bad illnesses caused by a lack of vaccination. For the lawyers amongst us, we're going to mention a couple of vaccines uh, that are not licensed yet since there's still research going on, so that's officially off-label use. The approach we're going to take in this time together is based on a few ideas. First, knowledge is power. I think we can be prepared personally and we can help our patients be prepared if we share good information with them. Secondly, I think if we admit that we don't know everything, and hopefully we're all willing to admit we don't know everything, we can be reminded that humility breeds caution. We should be humble enough to know we don't, don't know everything. We should be humble enough to know that scientific knowledge is incomplete, and that should make us cautious about being too dogmatic. Thirdly, I would say we're in this together. Uh, we have the potential of interacting freely. The way you all are sitting, I can't hear you perfectly, so if somebody has something to say, somebody closer to the screen and camera and microphone can make noise so I can hear that you want to talk. And we're going to start with some forest and then go to the trees. We'll start with some big picture views, and then we'll get down to some of the more detailed views. Is that sounding okay to everybody? All right, I can see one person close enough to where my screen is that's nodding. Hopefully by the end of this session, you'll be able to explain vaccines in the context of how they fit into an overall approach to prevention of infection. Uh, we'll have some good up-to-date information about vaccinations, and you know how to find such information as it continues to get updated. And then we'll talk about some new data, even from the past couple of weeks, about vaccines for a couple of important illnesses for those of us that care about people all around the world. So, for starters, vaccines, germs, and immunity. It's based on the problem of germs. And inside and out, each of us is covered with germs. Most of these germs don't bother us. Some of the germs help us. And a few of the germs might make us sick. Each of us right now is harboring trillions, literal trillions, T-R-I, trillions of germs in our intestines, on our skin, um, other parts of us. We are covered with germs and we have germs throughout us. 
Some of these germs are helping us digest food and they're helping us with nutrition. And then as we know, some of the germs might make us sick. So we're not against all germs. What can we do to suppress the bad germs so we don't get sick? Well, obviously we can sanitize the environment. We can try to kill germs. We don't think we're going to kill all the germs in our bodies or on our bodies. We don't think we're going to kill all the germs in the environment. But we can clean up the environment some so there are fewer bad germs around. Besides that, we can make the environment unfriendly for germs. And one example of that for those of us that work some in malaria endemic areas or other places where mosquitoes transmit germs is that we can make the environment unfriendly to mosquitoes so the mosquitoes won't hang around sharing the malaria parasite germs with us. We can do that by not having there be stagnant water. Mosquitoes depend on water to lay their eggs and develop their larvae and continue to make further generations of mosquitoes. So if we don't have water sitting in puddles or in buckets around the windows and doors of our houses in places where mosquitoes carry germs, then there'll be fewer mosquitoes around, meaning fewer of those germs being transmitted. So even before we get to vaccines, we care about suppressing germs so we have fewer germs that might make us sick. Then we can reduce transmission of germs. We know there are lots of ways that germs are transmitted. We as a group come from different backgrounds, some of us students, some of us practicing for decades, some of us in nursing, some of us in medicine, some in other fields. But we all know that germs can be transmitted in different ways. We can breathe out germs and breathe in germs. We can swallow germs from germs on our fingers or in our foods, beverages, or in our food. We can touch germs and transmit them and then get them on or into us by touch. And then there are those germs that are shared by sexual transmission, so intimate sharing of germs as well. If we can reduce those ways of transmission, then we'll have less likelihood of getting germs. Again, even before we talk about the specific immunizations, we're trying to see vaccination in context of an overall approach to reducing vaccine-preventable diseases and germ transmission. So how do we stop the breathing? Well, masks help us not breathe in and breathe out. We've known that for decades. Surgeons typically wear masks so they don't share their germs with the open bodies of their patients. Now we know that masks are good for helping us not give our germs to other people and for us not breathing in germs, whether it's a COVID-related germ or something else. For those of us going to what we used to call developing countries, low-resource countries, um, we have to be very careful about the germs we might swallow. That means we need to sanitize our hands before we touch anything we're going to eat or drink. It means we have to sanitize our hands before preparing food or before touching our mouths. Uh, we need to cook food or treat food. And then we should be able to treat our water, either by boiling or by other means of killing germs that would be in the water. Now, those of you that are going to be living in a place where the water coming out of faucets or rivers uh, would not be pure, now, you can treat the water. Boiling is the most effective way if you have access to hot water. Uh, if you cook your food that's good, those that like to eat fresh salads would need to treat the lettuce and the carrots and the tomatoes before you make the salad. 
One way to do that is to put a tablespoon of bleach into a kitchen sink size of water, mix it all up, and then soak your lettuce and carrots and tomatoes in that bleachy water for about 30 minutes, and that would kill germs on the surface. So there are ways to block breathing the spread of germs, ways to block the swallowing transmission of germs, gloves, hand washing, sanitizing, that's good. And of course, God's been in favor of monogamy for a long time to uh, stop the spread of other germs. But germs are sneaky. I knew this kind of stuff when I went to Congo years ago, and somehow the typhoid germs and the hepatitis A germs snuck through all my sanitizing and food and water precautions, and I still got sick with those germs. I admit that it's sometimes hard because germs are sneaky. What else can we do to help us not get infections? We can try to grow our natural immunity. There are some lifestyle choices that we should all be making that can help us be strong to prevent infections. We should eat well, we should get regular adequate sleep, we should get enough regular exercise. And despite what NFL football players might say these days, even if they're famous, eating extra, sleeping differently, and exercising more than a normal amount isn't going to help us get better immunity, but we can get up to a good baseline of immunity by these lifestyle factors. And then there's nerve memory. Our body remembers infections when they come in and makes anti-germ antibodies that will prevent future germs that look the same from causing us the same infection again. That's a natural thing because of nerve memory. So each time we get a cold, our body's going to remember that cold virus and we won't get infected with that one again. However, there are hundreds of different cold viruses, so there are plenty to go around and cause trouble later. So we can try to grow our natural immunity, but that's just to get it up to the baseline. There are not magical ways of supplements and herbs and medications that have been proven to give us better natural immunity, much as we might like to think they would. Then we can divide typically the way we talk about immunizations into two sorts of immunizations, passive and active. Passive means we just get the protection given to us. We're the passive recipients and don't have to do anything to be protected. Active means we're given something to stimulate us to take action in making antibodies to prevent infection. So with passive immunization, we accept the antibodies, these anti-germ chemicals, that are going to prevent or treat infection. Uh, we don't use these very much, but one example would be the general antibodies in immunoglobulin, and they contain antibodies to common things. So if somebody needs hepatitis A or measles protection in a hurry, for instance, then they could just get immunoglobulin, and then the immunoglobulin would be a whole bunch of antibodies, including the antibodies against hepatitis A and measles, that the donors of the antibodies, the immunoglobulin donors, have had in their blood. Of course, the hepatitis A vaccine is so good you can get it after an exposure, so you don't need immunoglobulin for that. Measles is similarly good, and we should have that prevented. But general antibodies and immunoglobulin are one form of passive immunization. There are also some germ-specific antibodies that we can passively receive. Um, an example of that would be hepatitis B, um, where we might get, if we've been exposed or a patient has been exposed, like a newborn exposed to the mother, 
we would give hepatitis B immune globulin in the delivery room to prevent the germs that the mother had shared with the baby from making the baby sick. So that's giving the antibodies already made, or giving the baby already made antibodies against hepatitis B so the baby doesn't get sick. Similarly, if we get bitten by a potentially rabid animal, we can get regular rabies vaccine, but also some rabies immune globulin injected around our bite wound so we can block the action of rabies. The third one there is B that's supposed to say botulism, not brucella, sorry for the typo. Um, if somebody has, as an infant, infant botulism with paralysis, we can give botulism-specific immune globulin. And then a final example of others would be respiratory syncytial virus, a common cause of newborn and young infant uh, respiratory troubles, usually in the wintertime. Um, and if we give RSV immune globulin, um, that can prevent kids from being as likely to get as sick from that. So, two kinds of passive immunization so far, the general antibodies, the germ-specific antibodies, and then there are a couple that have monoclonal antibodies. These are when we get white cells in a clonal genetic way to produce specific antibodies against specific germs. This isn't taking germs from people that have immunity and isolating them to give to others. This is in a lab making from white cells, making specific antibodies. The monoclonal antibodies that we could passively receive are possible for Ebola, also possible in some cases for COVID-19 when we hear about using the serum or antibodies from somebody else. But this would be monoclonal antibodies that have been prepared to protect us. So those are three ways we can have passive immunization. We could call that vaccine, but it's really passive. We don't do much of anything. Usually when we talk about vaccines, we're talking about active immunization. Active immunization means that somebody gives us, in a needle or a nose spray or something in our mouth, a product, a solution that contains either pieces of germs or inactivated germs or dead germs. That way we have what looks like a germ in our body. Our body recognizes it as not belonging and our body makes antibodies against it. So this time, our body has to be active to do something to make antibodies against it. They're not, we're not just being given somebody else's antibodies, we're making antibodies after being given something to promote us to do that. Most of the normal childhood vaccines that my pediatric patients get are this kind of normal active immunization. Chickenpox, whooping cough, influenza, typhoid fever, common vaccines. We give a piece of the vaccine or an inactive form of, sorry, a piece of the germ or an inactive form of the germ, and then that's going to help us develop antibodies. There's another kind of immunization, though, that I made up the term for. I would call this doubly active immunization. We're not just being given antibodies. We're not just being given a piece of a germ to make antibodies, but this form has a different step. This is where we take in, are given by injection usually, cellular messengers that tell us to make a germ protein. Then we make that protein, and then our body sees that protein and recognizes it as belonging to a germ, and our body makes antibodies against that protein. So the mRNA vaccines that we use for COVID these days, some of those vaccines are giving us mRNA, that's the genetic messenger, the cellular coding, that tells our body to make some protein. 
the protein happens to be the protein that's on that spike piece of the COVID virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So our body is told, make the protein. That protein's not going to hurt us at all, but then our body will recognize that protein as not belonging, and then we'll make antibodies against the protein. And then that mRNA gets washed away, and the spike protein gets washed away, but we're left with that immunologic memory with the antibodies that are waiting around so if ever again the spike protein shows up, we'll already have antibodies to block it. So that's the mRNA example of what I'm calling doubly active immunization. Some of the COVID and some of the few years ago newer than Ebola vaccines use a virus vector. So instead of getting mRNA, we get an inactive virus that just sneaks into our cells to give us DNA or RNA to actually provide the genetic code. And then we make the protein from that. So doubly active immunization, the term I just made up, um, means that we're getting messengers that tell us to make a protein, so we make the protein, and then we make antibodies against the protein, and then we clean up the kitchen. There's no risk from any of that material, and that's just left over with that antibody immune memory so we won't get so sick if we see the real spike protein or Ebola proteins in the future. Hopefully that's making sense. What I'm saying is there are different ways we can get products that are going to help us develop immunity. So what should we do about all this so far? First, I would say we can see that vaccination is a health issue. I think that's obvious, but as we know, vaccines have also become a political issue or a partisan issue or a fad issue or a social media issue or a church breakup issue even. But I think we need to see vaccines as a health issue just like we see antibiotics and other medical interventions as health issues. And then we should remind ourselves that vaccines help. Uh, this is the number of cases in thousands in the United States of measles each year until the vaccine got licensed in the 1960s and suddenly mis measles almost went away. Measles vaccine is incredibly ex uh, effective, more than 90% effective, sorry, more than 97% effective with a single dose, more than that if you get the two-dose series. And the people now that get measles are usually those that hadn't been vaccinated, uh, especially those traveling from somewhere else. Vaccines help. Another American example, when I was in training in pediatrics, most of the people in training with me, we got to see lots of babies and children with haemophilus influenza meningitis. I am glad that we hardly ever see patients with that disease anymore, and it's because in the 1980s vaccines came out. And with haemophilus influenza type B vaccines, as you see from the slide, uh, 1980s, the rate, the incidence of haemophilus influenza meningitis and pneumonia went down to almost nothing in the United States. Similar story for pneumococcal vaccine. Pneumococcus germs also cause meningitis and pneumonia. When the initial vaccine came out, the PCV7, um, there was a big drop in the incidence of pneumococcal disease when a better vaccine against more serotypes of the germs came out and about 11 years ago. Now we've got even fewer pneumococcal cases. So three examples of common vaccines that have helped drop the incidence of infection, illness, and death, even in the United States. The benefit of vaccines is even greater in other countries. So we need to realize that vaccines help, but we also need to realize that the need for vaccines vary. 
The need for vaccines varies geographically. If you live in North America, you don't need a yellow fever vaccine now. Even though in the 1700s, the first Continental Congress in the United States was delayed and then moved away from Philadelphia because of a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia. If you're going to Africa, you don't need a Japanese encephalitis virus vaccine. If you're going to India, you don't need a yellow fever vaccine there, but other places you would. Homophilus influenza, if you didn't get one as a child and you're more than five years old, you're not going to need it because it's not going to be a risk. Depending on your medical situation, you might or might not get the tuberculosis, TB vaccine. If you have access to medical care, you probably don't need the vaccine. But if your patients are going to be in a rural area with no access to care, where they could be sick for months with tuberculosis and not get care, then the vaccine would prevent them from going from sick with tuberculosis to being sick with disseminated miliary disease from tuberculosis. And that's why there are different vaccine schedules for different countries, because the needs for vaccine as well as the cost and feasibility vary in different places. So what to do? Vaccines and health issue. Vaccines help. Vaccine needs vary for good reasons in different parts of the planet. But we should acknowledge that vaccines are not perfect. I like vaccines. They help me. They help my patients. But they're not perfect. Protection rate is not 100%. Flu vaccines are 50 to 70% each year effective. And that's because the influenza virus keeps changing. And so we're not quite sure how to recognize it with the right kind of antibodies. Typhoid vaccines, similarly about 70% effective. Measles and hepatitis A with the full two-dose series pretty close to 100% effective, and the COVID-19 vaccines are all about 90% effective, not perfect, but really, really good in protecting against infection, disease, hospitalization, and death. And of course, the other imperfection of vaccines that the side effects might be there. If needles hurt, well, that's going to hurt if you get an injectable vaccine. Tetanus shots are going to make people sore at least 10% of the time. And yellow fever vaccines are fantastic. Yellow fever kills about 50% of people that get sick with it. It's a bad disease, but the vaccine can kill about one out of every 70,000 people that get it. So if you're going to be exposed to yellow fever, sure, you'll get the vaccine, but you have to realize that vaccines are not perfect. So practically, what are we going to do? We need to stay up to date. Uh, I'm not going to give you all the details of vaccine schedules, but there's a website from the CDC. WHO has a similar schedule I'll show you a piece of. Uh, that'll help us know where to look. Vaccine schedules are changed at least every year as new information comes out. This is part of the CDC schedule for normal children, birth to 15 months, just some of the things that are given for different germs and the times they're given. Routine schedules that are known to be safe and effective in preventing illness and still preventing death. World Health Organization is dealing with people mostly in less resourced countries. Uh, they suggest fewer vaccines. I just showed you a piece of the CDC one. World Health Organization doesn't have as many vaccines as the CDC recommends related to feasibility issues. But similarly, there are different vaccines that are recommended. Um, these slides can be available to all of you. The websites are there. You can look them up. And these vaccine schedules get updated at least every year, so you can always check in and see what's needed uh, as you're getting ready for travel or making sure you're up to date. 
Besides that, I would suggest that we make sure our patients, if we're not in a travel clinic ourselves, I would suggest that our patients go to a travel clinic um, if they're going to be traveling, uh, or that we get travel clinic recommendations for ourselves or for the places we're going to be. Uh, that's the website. Here's an image from the International Society of Travel Medicine. You can plug in a city anywhere in the world and find the closest travel clinics to there. Places where they'll give those particular travel vaccines. Not all pediatric and family medicine and internal medicine offices carry typhoid and yellow fever vaccines. Um, and the, this website can tell you where to find places that can give those special vaccines that are useful in other parts of the world. So we can get, check out the normal schedules, check out the travel schedules, and then I'm saying we should be up to date with our immunizations. I'm not trying to sell anybody's shoes, but I put the Nike logo there just as the reminder that I think shots are worth it. According to the expert recommendations, they're safe enough and effective. Um, they beat the chance. They're better than getting the risk of the illness. So I would use the old just do it approach and say we should get vaccinated. We'll finish off with a few more recent vaccine updates uh, about some new information about vaccines and vaccine presentable illnesses um, that we all care about. Malaria vaccine. Malaria is a really tough germ because it has several different stages in the body. It goes from the skin when the mosquito bites into the liver. That takes about 30 minutes. It's in the liver for a week or so, or several years sometimes. Then it's in the blood cycling through for a few days. And then there's the form that the mosquitoes can take out of your blood if you're sick with malaria to give to somebody else. So four different stages of the malaria parasite life cycle in humans, plus what it does in mosquitoes. Um, so it's been hard to develop a good vaccine. The good news in that is there is now a vaccine that's available and effective, but only for about 40%. Um, so there's a vaccine that could be used in children in places where there's malaria, and it prevents illness and injury, illness and hospitalization and death about by 40%. Now, normally we wouldn't think 40% protection is hardly worth getting the vaccine. But when we realize there are still more than 400,000 children dying of malaria each year, if we can present, prevent almost 200,000 of those deaths, that would be fantastic. So there is some value in using a malaria vaccine, but it's not going to protect completely. So this is a recent study from New England Journal a couple of, couple of months ago. And it compared in places where there is seasonal transmission, not year-round, but just with rainy season. Everybody in the study got impregnated bed nets. One group of study participants got the malaria vaccine. That's been about 40% of the time. Another group got a combination of two different medicines, sulfadoxine pyrimethamine with amlodiaquine. Um, those are preventive medicines, but if you take them regularly during the malaria season, that can get down the risk of malaria. So what they did in the study was bed nets for everybody, that's good, um, and then vaccine for some, sulfadoxine, paramethamine for some with amlodiaquine, and then some got both interventions, vaccine and chemoprophylaxis. Chemo prevention, the medicines, were similarly effective to the vaccine. That's really good. It's not perfect, but it helps protect. But the amount of protection when you added both together 
was a lot better. So not just an additive effect, but a synergistic effect, reminding us that vaccines for malaria aren't perfect, but when we combine malaria vaccines with other means of prevent, preventing malaria, especially in areas with seasonal transmission, then the effect is magnified. So there is good potential that malaria vaccines are going to be effective as good combination products with other means of trying to prevent malaria. So here's the conclusion of that study. Uh, administration of this RTSS vaccine was similar, not inferior to chemoprophylaxis to prevent uncomplicated malaria, but when you combine both the medicine and the vaccine, there was a substantially lower incidence of simple malaria, severe malaria, and death from malaria. Um, so that's very good. That means we're making progress even though vaccines aren't perfect. What about COVID vaccines? One of the questions I commonly get from people working around the world is, but we only have this or we only have these two, which vaccine is best? I would say whatever vaccine you can get is the best one. Any of the available COVID vaccines is better than no vaccine, even though, sure, the mRNA vaccines work a little bit better than the others. Uh, but if you can't get one of those based on where you're living, another vaccine would still provide some value. But we need to pay attention to ongoing research. It's only, well, it's less than two years that anybody's even known what COVID-19 is. It's a new sort of a thing with huge amounts of research, more research on vaccines for this than many other illnesses. But it keeps changing as new research comes out. So as a pediatrician, I care about this. This was a paper that came out this month um, looking at evaluation of BNT162B2, that's what we usually call the Pfizer vaccine. So looking at this in children age 5 to 11. Conclusion of this study, if you use the lowest dose they tested, 10 micrograms, and they get a series of two doses three weeks apart, it was safe, it provoked production of antibodies, good active immunization, doubly active in this case, and it was effective in these kids in preventing them from being sick. So this is what some call phase one, is it safe? Phase two, does it help people mount a serologic response? And phase three, in the real world, does it prevent disease? Yes, on all three phases, uh, this vaccine was effective for kids. Um, so we can look forward to younger children being able to get that vaccine. What about pregnant women? This is something else, another paper from this month. Uh, looking at a systematic review, that means combining the data from lots of different studies at how safe, and this is phase one, two, and three again, safety, immune uh, production of antibodies, and then phase three, effectiveness in more real-life situations. So looking at pregnant women and how effective the COVID-19 vaccines are for them. And again, fortunately, the combined result of 23 studies, COVID-19 vaccinated vaccination in pregnant and lactating individuals is immunogenic, does not cause significant adverse events um, or any pregnancy outcome problems, and is effective. So COVID vaccines, we now know, can be good for kids down to age five, at least probably even lower, we'll learn, and they're safe in pregnant women. Finally, I just want to mention dengue vaccine. It's one that's been a challenge around the world. Um, phase one studies showed that it was safe. Phase two studies um, showed that people could produce antibodies. And then after it was licensed and used in the Philippines, 
people started dying of dengue after the vaccine. So there are sometimes some promise and also pitfalls uh, of vaccines. The problem with dengue is that there are four different strains of virus that cause dengue fever. And people that have seen one strain are more likely to get way sicker once they see it the second time with one of the different strains. And sadly, it turned out that the dengue vaccine served as the priming, so people got sicker when they got dengue later. More dengue vaccines are being studied, but we still need more progress. It's the reminder to us to be wise with our science, wise with the use of our data, so we can do what's best as we keep loving our patients. So we've reviewed something about the background of vaccines. We've reviewed something about the way vaccines work. We've talked about how we can get information about vaccines. And we've talked about some new vaccines um, and new research of what we're learning. And now, with the wonderfulness of Zoom, we can try to talk about all this. I'm guessing some of what I've said probably has provoked some comments at least and maybe some questions from some of you. Um, what questions or comments might you have for me? Yes, um, the uh, data that we have in Louisville, Kentucky, doesn't match your studies on COVID. We have myocarditis. We have uh, infants uh, who are dying when the parents get vaccinated. We're having um, uh, people who are uh, not diagnosed with RSV or flu or cold not being treated, and then they're being uh, known as a COVID patient, but then they're being treated with toxic remdesivir and being killed. We've had three murders in the hospitals, uh, one on a seven-week-old baby, one on a 42-year-old woman, and we've had several others. I talked to a surgeon last night who had to insert a feeding tube on a woman who got jabbed. And the, there's 45,000 people dead in the U.S. within three days of the vaccine, according to a federal court case against Health and Human Services. So the data that you're presenting for COVID, um, COVID's not even on the national uh, vaccine list. It's still listed by the uh, U.S. Health Resources and Services Administration as a countermeasure, uh, as part of the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. So, if that, so that's the U.S. data, and then for Vietnam, there were 300 deaths for 18 months because they treated COVID just wonderfully. They had good intervention, great prevention, great prophylactics. Then CDC, Pfizer, AstraZeneca. Moderna and um, WHO came in, promoted injections. The injection rollout, after uh, a massive injection rollout, five to 15 days later, there was a massive increase in infection, and within five to six weeks, there were 15,000 people dead. It was genocide. So we have 300 people dead for 18 months. Then we have this massive vaccination Injection, which is a patented bio uh, pathogen by Pfizer 2019 before the pandemic, and it calls for three to five boosters. That process has killed 15,000 people in Vietnam when before the injections were rolled out, they only had 300 deaths. So the U.S. data, the Vietnamese data, show that the COVID injections cause infections which we're calling Delta variant, and it's not being 
properly classified in our hospitals. So um, my concern is that how do you take the data that's not getting there into these studies, these studies, and how do you address the data that is not, or the studies that are being suppressed and not out there because we're all healthcare representatives and it's killing people, but it's not out in the general media. So, can you address that for us? Certainly, yeah, I appreciate your concern, and I think it comes down to basically doing good science. What we talked about some yesterday in one of the plenary sessions about using data in a wise way. I think we need to consider the source of where the numbers are coming from that we're hearing. We need to add up the risks and the benefits. We need to look at the validity of studies. Uh, different studies are presented in different ways. In the country where I'm living now, most of the Chinese vaccine, the first one I chose to get, most of those results, instead of coming out in research journals, came out in local newspapers with press releases from the company. That's not always as peer-reviewed and reliable, but it seemed good enough to me. I think we need to consider the sources. You mentioned the myocarditis. There are two known risks of COVID vaccines which are very concerning. Uh, blood clots in young women, myocarditis in young men. Those are real risks. Those are real problems. Statistically, by looking at thousands and thousands of people that have been vaccinated with the risks of things happening, those are risks. Like we said, vaccines are not perfect. But we need to look at the denominator, how many people would get myocarditis otherwise, how many people would die of COVID otherwise. Um, so I think there are a couple of issues um, with what you're saying. One would be to make sure that the data that we're getting is actually reliable. The second would be to make sure that the studies are done in a way to make sure we're really thinking about cause and effect. The other thing I'll throw in there, it's been sad to see that not all scientists are fully scrupulous or have scruples. Um, there have been several papers that were retracted when the data were found to be faulty, but then people keep quoting them. So I think that's the call to all of us to really use our brains, to use our minds as we think about the source of the data we're hearing, make sure that it was done in a credible way and reported well. So I share the concern about those things, but I think we need to get back to the actual data uh, and as I've reviewed the data, and as most others I think have reviewed the data, if we add up the risk and the benefit, I think that, well, I would not come to the same conclusions you have about genocide caused by the drug companies going in. Other comments about that from some others of you? I have one more on the uh, spike protein. The uh, spike protein that is injected um, actually uh, is a pathogen which causes the cells to generate more uh, spike protein. So you have your smooth wall capillaries that when you get into the smallest uh, level in the capillary, you have microclotting because it's no longer smooth. And then you have microclotting which increases lethargy because you're losing your, your blood oxygen transfer. And what the uh, subsequent injections are showing for those who are injured, based on the autopsies, they're showing this clotting. So the idea that the spike proteins are safe or the vaccines are safe uh, really needs uh, further uh, exploration because there is a clotting issue with the spike protein. That in itself is the pathogen. 
Um, so I agree that we need further information, and that's why I suggested we need to keep paying attention to the up-to-date science. Uh, but I don't agree that the spike protein is actually a pathogen. Um, so what you've been hearing and reading and are quoting is different than all the scientific information that I've looked at. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a matter of interpreting the information correctly, making sure we're getting good information from the sources. Other comments? What is the incidence of COVID in children aged 5 to 11? The incidence of COVID? Yeah. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers. It varies in different areas. COVID is less serious in children, but I have seen children, my own patients, that have gotten sick with COVID and critically sick with COVID even. Um, so we need to look at the incidence and the risk. I think there are two reasons that any of us would think about preventing COVID. One is for the individual that would be sick. The other reason is for the individuals that might get it from that primary individual. Um, so the risk of COVID in children uh, is real. Children can get sick. They can die from COVID, even though they're not as likely as adults to get sick and die. Um, but they also have the risk of transmitting COVID to their relatives and others that they might be around, um, especially if they're around other unvaccinated people. Um, so as I look at the risk, it's a real risk. Uh, the other question we would throw in is we don't want to think of people just as statistics. And if a child dies of COVID, that's 100% of that child and family that's affected. Um, so yes, there's less risk of COVID that causing children to die, but it's not a zero risk. And the vaccine does seem to be safe and effective for them. Do you have any numbers? Um, not right off the top of my head, but those numbers should be available. Uh, do you have numbers you want to share? No. I have some numbers. There, the, uh, I have some numbers. The, um, there is no approved vaccine for COVID in the United States because none of them are on the, the national uh, vaccine list because none of them have completed any of the trials. And therefore, there is no vaccine for children. What we're being, what you're presenting is that there's this vaccine for children, but it's not tested, it's not considered a vaccine, it's not considered safe, and therefore the data that you're talking about doesn't exist for safety for children. It's, it's, it, they're just starting an experiment on children. It's not even a vaccine that's been approved. It has been so, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm presenting new information just published for that study this week, actually. Um, so it's new information, and part of our job as healthcare professionals is to be able to evaluate the data and see. Um, there's been lots of data, there are lots of data that say how COVID is in children. I presented some data about safety and efficacy of the vaccine, um, so those are the facts about it. Uh, but this is new data to make us aware of what's going on and let us know what is coming down towards popular use coming up in the future. And I would say that there is emergency use approved. Yeah. by the FDA. Emergency use. And yes, and, and there are hundreds of drugs that are saving people's lives that have emergency use approved. 
and, and they are absolutely necessary. I have been studied. There are large groups of children. In, I know in Atlanta there were children that were being studied. Oh, I couldn't hear that well enough. Could somebody sitting closer to the microphone repeat that or summarize that comment? There have been studies done with children. Um, I'm from Georgia, and I know there were a large number of children in the Atlanta, metro Atlanta area were, were probably part of this New England Journal article. I'm going to go back and read it, but I guarantee you that it has been studied with children. Oh, yeah. There, there are lots of studies going on. Um, some of them are what we would call natural experiments of seeing what happens, and some of them are with the vaccine trials of what's being done. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of studies going on in many different countries, many different settings, and different age groups. Yeah, thank you for that comment. Yep, and the other comment was somebody saying that um, they do have emergency use approval. Um, or authorizations, and that there are um, hundreds of drugs that are saving people's lives in the United States and around the world that only exist under emergency use authorizations, and that so the science and the data is there to back them up. Right, and I certainly agree with that. We're talking about two, two parallel processes, really. One process is the process of learning about medications or vaccines and what works, um, and we have good information about that with more information coming out. The parallel process, which lags a bit slower, is insurance company approval and government approval and other agencies to actually use things. And we know government approval doesn't just matter on the science, but also on feasibility. One example of that, when everybody knew the chickenpox vaccine was effective in preventing chickenpox, and we realized not as many die of chickenpox, but some do. Uh, we knew it was available, but the government waited a year or two before proposing it, because for the government to propose, approve it and propose it as a routine vaccine, but the government would have to pay for it for those that were on government insurance. So the approval process does involve a little bit of the policy making. Uh, what we're talking about mostly is the scientific knowledge about safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy of the vaccines. So yeah, that was, that's a good comment. Thanks for saying that so I could hear that as well. And thanks to the person that said that. I have a question. Other comments in our closing minutes? Yep, someone has a question and they're gonna say it and then I will repeat it to you. Thank you. My question is um, about having natural immunity to, I guess, you know, I was a kid, I had chicken pox. There's no need for me to have the chicken pox vaccine, and I'm equally protected, and that's, you know, all of my studies and, you know, all the classes I've ever took or anything I've ever researched has been, you know, the, the purpose of the vaccine you know, is to produce, or, you know, to obviously the active immunity. But then with the COVID vaccine, I'm, kind of, I'm just kind of curious, why would the COVID vaccine or with COVID issue, why um, having active antibodies or having past infection isn't good enough to protect against that, to protect against COVID? Yeah. So I'm just really curious. Like, I'm just really curious. Like, why is it, you know, past infection equally Protective. Yeah, so there's a question about why um, those who basically get COVID and have antibodies, why they need to take the vaccine, um, when that doesn't seem to be the case in other diseases, um, but why that, why the current recommendations are that those patients should get the vaccine. Very good. 
very good question and also a beautiful example about teamwork. I'm looking out the window behind you all and seeing some fall colors and missing Louisville for lots of reasons. And I'm also appreciating the teamwork of you all. So thanks for passing that question on and being a team as we all work together on this. So different different illnesses provoke different sorts of reactions. And so some vaccines require boosters, um, some vaccines a single dose is okay, um, and some are not completely protective. Um, so a little bit of a long answer. Tetanus is one where if you get tetanus disease, you're not protected against getting tetanus again. The way the antibodies are made to tetanus, it does not prevent another infection. So we need vaccines for tetanus, even if we've had tetanus disease. Fortunately, tetanus is not very common, largely because people do get vaccines. Other vaccines, the protection wears off, and so booster doses might be needed. And then we mentioned the influenza vaccine, where flu changes its antigens, changes its proteins over each flu season. So last year's flu vaccine, even though it protected us then, those antibodies we had won't be very protective against this year's flu vaccine. COVID is special and unique, and it doesn't seem to be changing as much as the influenza virus, uh, but there are two things that we see. Number one, the natural infection with COVID does not seem to protect against, or does not seem to provide long-lasting antibody protection, and it does not protect as well against different strains like the Delta strain. Um, so people that have already had COVID have some protection, but it's not as effective as if they get vaccine protection even after that. In a way, it's similar to people that get one vaccine and then they're partly protected for a while, and then when they get the second dose, that boosts their immunity so they're more protected uh, for longer. So as best we understand COVID at this point, natural infection does protect some, but not completely. And if you add the vaccine even after a natural infection, that will provide additional protection uh, to make you more fully protected if you get exposed to it again. Does that make sense to the person that was asking that? Yes. Um, I guess I understand all of that. I just, I guess I'm curious why if we do, like, where I work, we have, like, antibody tests. You can, but they've just kind of retracted that recently. So if you do get the test, like, if you do get a blood test and you do have antibodies and it does say, then why is that not? I mean, I understand that it can wane over time, and I understand we need the boosters you know, in the general sense. But I'm really, I mean, I'm just like sincerely curious why, if you know we have antibodies, then why don't those count? And how do we know that, that the antibodies produced by the vaccine, you know, eventually those are going to wane, and of course you need the booster. You know, I don't know. So the, there was a follow-up question with regards to, um, in, you know, a clinic situation when you have somebody who's had an infection um, and you can test the antibodies and see that they have antibodies. And up there's an understanding that those may wane over time or different things, um, but where does that kind of fit into um, the antibodies that are being produced from the COVID vaccine um, and, you know, how those are, are equivalent or maybe aren't equivalent? I appreciate the question and relaying the question on, and it's an excellent question. 
We don't understand many things we don't understand completely. There is a relationship between the spike protein antibody levels and protection against getting infection. But it's not a perfect relationship. Um, so if you, if you have antibody levels that suggest you have some protection, but it's not a perfect indicator of how much protection. So we know by seeing people that have had vaccine or natural infection and what their risk is of getting infection, the actual number of the antibody level is not a reliable enough predictor to use that as a determination of whether or not you get the vaccine. If it was a perfect predictor, then we could all just check our serology, our antibody levels, and then we would know whether we needed the vaccine again. But the antibody levels don't correlate exactly with the actual immunity to the infection. Um, so very good question, and that's why we can't rely fully on the antibodies yet. They're predictive, they're an indicator, but they're not completely predictive of how much protection there is from natural infection. It looks like we're down to our final few seconds. Thank you very much for participating in GMHC. Thanks for participating in this session. Thanks for the good attention. So thank you all very much and have a good rest of your morning.